their concept of timelines is different than ours, so it's hard to place if their ancient oral history and how they tell us is from a history that occurred on this planet or somewhere else, or we don't know. Yeah. I'm open to anything at this point. I used to be one of those traditional mainstream Sasquatch researchers, and I'm, I'm telling you this, I had my suspicions, but this case really uh, really closed the deal on my, my whole perspective of, of who and what we're dealing with here, and it's, it's taken a, a drastic transformation over the, the past eight, eight or nine years. This is Tim Benall of BenallofAmerica.com with another edition of Benall of America Audio. It is May 13th, 2006, and we have a very special edition of Benall of America Audio for you this week. You see, folks, sometimes Benall of America Audio, it's not just about the superstar, A-list, celebrity, esoteric guests. It's not just about the Jim Marses, the Stanton Friedmans, the Richard Dolanses. It's not just about those guys. Sometimes it's about folks whose work I come upon accidentally or through serendipitous events, and I say, wow, this is amazing stuff. I've never really heard much from this guy. So I bring him on the show. I get him on All of America Audio, and hopefully they can get some more exposure, some national exposure, and when you hear him on the big-time radio shows out there, you can say, wait a minute, I heard that guy on All of America Audio like last year. So that's the whole point of it, folks. We're not just talking about the superstars. We're talking about the superstars of tomorrow, and this week we're bringing you possibly a superstar of tomorrow, Joe Fax, alternative Sasquatch researcher. He's got a ton of fascinating and thrilling and really mind-boggling stuff. You're going to really dig it, I think. If you don't know much about Joe Fax, let me give you his bio. Joe Fax is the founder and curator of the Apex Research Archives, which houses one of the most extensive paranormal-related photographic and rare data research archives in the Midwestern region, including some of the oldest known UFO photos and Sasquatch documents of the modern age dating back into the mid-1800s, as well as documents reflecting phenomena in ancient times. Fex has had a lifetime of first-hand paranormal experiences, prompting his extensive studies and pursuits into the unknown, and his explorations have led to many highly controversial theories and heated debate. He has served as consultant and provided research assistance to many of the most renowned and respected minds in paranormal science in most fields of research, and is internationally recognized as one of the nation's top minds in the fields of Sasquatch and UFO studies. He has dedicated over 16 years to the collection and study of data, 12 years of research assistance in public education, and nearly a decade of private and public lectures throughout the western United States. He's conducted several expeditions with groundbreaking results and is currently living in Denver, Colorado, and collecting notes for various papers, articles, and books for publication and lecturing. His website is www.ufothinktank.com, and then click the Apex Research button in the top right-hand corner. 
or if you want to do it the more complicated way, go to www.ufothinktank.com slash apexresearch slash index.html. Let me read it out for you. www.ufothinktank.com slash apexresearch slash index.html. That's the long version, or just go to ufothinktank.com and click the Apex button in the top right-hand corner. Without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on May 7th, 2006. Joe Fex on Banal of America Audio. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio. Uh, this week's guest is Joe Fex. We had a very serendipitous way this interview came about uh, when I was at the X Conference 2. Uh, last April, not this past April, but the previous one, um, I was looking through the DVD rack because uh, my friend there, Ted St. Rain, was taping it, and he has the DVDs from many conferences all over the world that he has on display uh, when he's selling the DVDs. But anyway, he uh, he said I could just grab some that I liked and that looked interesting, and, and uh, I'm looking through, and here's one that says Alternatives in Sasquatch and Bigfoot Research, Joe Facts. So I picked that up brought it home, uh, and watched it, and, and then uh, when we were putting together Banal of America Audio, Joe Fax was on the list of guests, and then ironically enough, this past week, um, the guy we were supposed to interview, something came up, he couldn't do the interview, and right before that happened, I got an email from someone saying, you should have Joe Fax on your show. So it was like, you know what, they're right, I should have Joe Fax on the show. I rewatched the DVD. Send an email off to Joe Fex, and here he is on Banal of America Audio. Joe Fex, welcome to the show. How are you doing, Tim? I'm doing great. Well, Joe, why don't we start out first with, uh, give me your background, because you're sort of on the fringe of a Bigfoot research, and uh, like I said, I had just discovered you last year. I haven't seen you really too much myself. I'm just sort of getting into the research. Um, you're pretty well-known in the underground, but uh, why don't you give some background, some bio, and how you got into um, alternative research in general. Okay, uh, well, some would call it fringe, but some of us like to think of it as advanced. <laughs> uh, there's, there's actually many different researchers that have been around for a long time. A lot of them, uh, a lot of them are known by subculture, and, and few of them are known to the mainstream. And the, uh, the extent of their work is even less known to the mainstream. Uh, for instance, all the Bigfoot researchers can identify with Ivan T. Sanderson, who, wrote, of course, wrote, uh, one of the most definitive works and scientific examinations of the phenomenon, but none of those researchers in Sasquatch research are willing to go as far as to look at all the other things that this, this great scientist was studying. Um, I got involved with the, with the stuff primarily uh, when I was growing up in the early 70s. It was, it was mainstream pop culture. It was mainstream uh, media and things of this nature, and for the for the first time, there was a real explosion of all kinds of different documentaries and movies and books and uh, fiction-based horror films and things like this dealing with paranormal, different paranormal fields and elements. And uh, at a young age, I had several different uh, experiences with UFOs and things of this like, and uh, that kind of that really opened my mind to the possibilities of. You know, there's a, there's a serious nature to a lot of this stuff, and uh, there was enough serious people looking at it that grabbed my attention that, that weren't like the outback farmer that had UFOs landing in his fields or, you know, the hillbilly in, in, in the middle of the woods that had Bigfoot in his backyard. 
uh, these guys were accredited, esteemed, and many very pioneering scientists that were widely recognized up until the point they started looking into these things. And I, I learned one primary lesson from Ivan Sanderson's works. I'd say by the time I was in fifth grade, I learned the fundamental of if everybody's telling you not to look at it, that's when you need to look at it. Yeah. And uh, I've kind of adhered by those kind of policies and that way of thinking. And uh, it's it's gone from one area into the other. And I, I never really intended to mix different fields of phenomena together. I just had a primary interest in Bigfoot and UFOs. Yeah. But uh, as time goes on, the more research and raw data you examine in conjunction with a lot of uh, the research and data that others have collected uh, had underlying elements of them that connected these things to other different various types of phenomena. For instance, many people that uh, see UFOs, right, yep. have telepathic or physical contact, conscious contact, with alien entities and landed craft. Okay, so there's one field UFOs branching out into the field of the contactee enigma yep. and the abduction phenomena, two other different fields. Uh, the mutilation uh, scenario, for instance, is very, very distinctly tied into the UFO field. Few people know it, but the Sasquatch are often seen at these scenes. Mm -hmm. Not interacting with the mutilations, but nearby. People nearby report the Sasquatch, and people on site where the mutilation occurs also report the Sasquatch. The UFO people don't know how to deal with those kind of cases, and the Bigfoot people won't even look at them. Um, and we're just reaching a point in, in research to where a lot of the people that had come to these same avenues before and inadvertently went from one field of research into looking to the details of another field of research because they kept running across it. Uh, those pioneering minds really completed a lot of these theories back in the early 60s. Uh, people like Stan Gordon, Johnny A. Keel, uh, Sanderson, again, was one of them. There were a lot of people uh, that really saw how these things lined up and connected and knew that there was a relativity but none of the fields involved were prepared to start assembling those connections. Yeah. They were still wrestling with, with the, the reality of the, of the, of the initial phenomenon mm -hmm. in their own rights, you know? Yeah. And uh, so throwing in different phenomenon like uh, UFOs with the Sasquatch, well, what, what was a simple theory, Sasquatch being an ape or a caveman, uh, is now becoming more complex once you throw the UFO thing into it. Yeah. Uh, once you throw the telepathy in, thing into it, it, it becomes even grossly more complex because then that drags you into intelligence and culture and all kinds of weird things that are going on. Yeah. But uh, anybody who's honest with the Sasquatch research will tell you that occasionally it's not real prevalent, but we do have a steady heartbeat, the signal that keeps coming through research, X amount of reports that you take in will net X amount of reports that involve nearby phantom cancer sightings, nearby UFO sightings, sometimes by the same witnesses in the same spot, although that is rare. It does happen. And everybody in UFO research is aware that there are many different UFO cases that are prominent and very well established that also have these other phenomena involved with Sasquatch and, you know, poltergeists, for instance, seem to follow heavy UFO activity. We have a case out here in Colorado like that to where the assembly of scientists that were assembled, this is the third crew of scientists to examine this case, uh, are perplexed because every crew of scientists that comes in is prepared to deal with a set number of phenomena. 
mainly around the UFO enigma. Because this guy is clearly an abductee, we have all the evidence of that. He's clearly having contacts on a subconscious level. We have all the evidence of that. They're around him all the time. He can, he's got tons of clear videotape. And at the same time, we're getting uh, kinetic energies. We're getting invisible phantoms moving around that are occasionally caught on film, caught on video. Orbs, uh, streams of some type of burst of energy. Uh, all these different things are the more liking to a, a, a parapsychology crew yes. as opposed to a, a ufologist or a, a physics crew. And uh, the case keeps going round and round with these teams of researchers because they're kind of overwhelmed with the stuff they're not familiar with. And what they need is they need a comprehensive gathering of many different fields that are prepared to understand and respect each other's, each other's work, you know, and acknowledge that each other's field of expertise is valid, because they all are valid. There's no paranormal phenomenon that simply does not exist, in my view. You know, some are rarer than others, like uh, human combustion is a very rare phenomenon. Mm-hmm. We know, we still know after all this time, we still know next to nothing about it. Yeah. All the theories, when put to the test, don't seem to pan out. Um, but, uh, but yeah, they, they need a comprehensive crew. And back in the 60s, there were several several different bodies of science that had started assembling things like that. Uh, Jim and Coral Lorenzen, for instance, uh, were primarily ufologists and very well respected in the field, uh, and later branched out into all these other different areas of strangeness, you know. And uh, they formed several groups. Uh, Ivan Terence Samuelson formed a group called the C2 Group, the uh, Society for the Investigation of the Unexplained. And it was, uh, for the first time, it was an assembly of some of the most pioneering minds and, and a, whole, a whole group of different fields of science. All of them worked together. All of them lived at the same complex. All of them conducted their studies and, and were in perfect tune with one another, you know, and yeah. were... Anybody that is into the paranormal fields knows that the biggest obstacle to overcome isn't public awareness, it isn't government resistance, it's, uh, it's uh, the sociology within these groups. Yeah. It's impossible to assemble a Bigfoot group or UFO group without all of these sociological things coming into play and it ending up in a big pile of more energy spent on squabbling and idiocy, dominant control and things like this, than energy spent actually comprehensively or critically studying the data. Yeah. So would you say uh, um, your area of research sort of is focused on the, the areas where these different disciplines bleed into each other? In, in a lot of ways, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's beginning to tie these different fields together and, and really get to the core of what their relevancy with each other is. Yeah. Um, now, uh, one of the things that you were talking about on the, on the DVD that I saw and uh, that I, we were talking about in the pre-interview was... Uh, this Janice Carter Coy story, uh, you said it's very, it's very uh, popular in, the, in your speaking engagements and things like that. So yeah. why don't you uh, tell me a little bit about this, because I had never heard of it, but it sounds like a fascinating case. Well, in, in brief, that, that, that uh, particular talk that, that you, you're talking about that you have on DVD mm-hmm. uh, was actually, we didn't know it at the time, or we had just received news of it, there had been an attempt to have an expedition to the area after uh, after a few years of working with the witnesses and, and on-site researchers. Yeah. Um, and that was, that expedition was somewhat sabotaged. All the computers were crashed at the same time, everybody involved, all these different things going on, and it hindered it. And so we decided from that point that 
no one could know when we were dispatching for this expedition. Oh wow! And when we when we when we did find out, we had 48 hours to gear up and, and head out. And at that same talk, just prior to me giving that that lecture, um, I had just received news that we had 48 hours <laughs> to load up and, and, and get out of Dodge and head out to the area. Oh wow! And uh, so it was so secretive that, that even we, we didn't know. The crew that was going had no idea if and when we were really going. And we had to keep it absolutely silent until until I was within 45 minutes of Mary Green, the primary investigator, 45 minutes of her, her house is when we called her. We called her at 1230 in, in the night and uh, let her know that we were there. And, and they, there was a window of time where Janice and Mary and all these people involved knew that we could show up at any given point in time. Oh, wow. You know, but, yeah. but we didn't want to risk emails or phone calls or anything like this that would indicate a precise matter of time because the first sabotage ended up costing quite a bit of money. And uh, and uh, so we didn't want that to repeat itself. Okay, well, why don't you, um, why don't you catch the, uh, the audience and I up to date on what the story right. is all about and uh, the origins of it and things, or maybe bring us up to uh, this expedition that you were just talking about. Okay, well, a, lo a lot of people uh, aren't really familiar with the fact that there's been, in recent years, there's been a growing number of what we call contact cases. I've got them, Dr. Jack Lapsoritis has got them, Tom Powell's got them. Uh, there's several going on in Tennessee. And these are primarily cases in which people have either an extremely high prominence of Bigfoot activity in their immediate vicinity, or people have had long-term social interactions with these guys. Um, uh, in, in rare instances, like what we're going to talk about with the Koi case, uh, language and contact have distinctively been established. And uh, many new things are being learned directly from the sources, from the Sasquatches themselves. And we also use this information as researchers amongst each other uh, to cross-reference and double-check what, what a lot of these new witnesses are saying. Yeah. Uh, because now that it is publicly known to some extent, now we can start expecting people to start fabricating these types of cases. And uh, where before, you know, five years ago, it wasn't really a problem because nobody knew what was going on. Yeah. No one had written about it. Nobody had said anything. And with the Koi case, primarily, uh, to summarize it in brief, back in the early to mid-1940s, a man named Robert Carter in Tennessee uh, was clearing land, and he was cutting trees down. Uh, for days, he had had the feeling that some, someone was watching him, but he couldn't determine who. And out there in this remote area of Tennessee, uh, he felled a tree, and that tree struck a being and pinned it to the ground. Uh, the being was small, looked like a young child, and he was covered with hair. And uh, so Carter cut off the tree around him, uh, scooped him up, took him back to the farmhouse, and bandaged him up and cleaned up his wounds and went out trying to locate who this person belonged to. Um, he had no idea what to think of it, and the only thing he could relate it to was, was a deformed child. Oh. So this is what he went around to his neighbors uh, inquiring about without luck. And upon returning home, his Native American neighbor uh, called his attention and pointed out to him that you don't have a child here. What you have is you have a young Sasquatch, and if I were you, I'd get rid of it, because mom and dad are going to come looking for it. Yeah. And you don't want to be involved with them. 
And uh, so from there, he locked it into a stall in the barn because by the time he got home, he found uh, that the, the the kid had torn up his whole house. Oh, they're, they're not, they don't do very well on the indoors. Uh, they seem to have a different thermostat than we do, and they start acting like a wild animal in a cage when they are, like, locked in a house. Yeah. And uh, I've seen this happen several times as well. And uh, so that's one thing that they, they really don't get along with. So he took it out of the house, and he took it out to the barn, put it into a stall, and uh, lo and behold, a night or two later, Mom and Dad came back, tore the doors off the, the barn, tore the, uh, the doors out of the stall, and uh, took off with their kid. Uh, anyway, in the, in the weeks and months and later years that followed, this young Sasquatch kept coming back and observing this guy working out in the field and watching him, and after a period of time, uh, Carter started talking to him. And he just, almost like talking to himself, he would just talk in a soothing manner and, and just kind of occupy his day out in the field by talking to someone he knew was out there, but he couldn't see him. And eventually, this culminated into an area of trust to where the Sasquatch subject was able to get closer to him. He was able to get closer to the Sasquatch, so on and so forth, and eventually developed into a very uh, in-depth relationship to where uh, it, well, it lasted for the rest of their lives. And uh, Carter, of course, died in 96, uh, I think. But uh, where the story really comes into play is a handful of years ago, uh, a woman named Janice Carter Coy, uh, someone in Tennessee along lines of uh, conversation here and there, word eventually got back to a researcher named Mary Green that there was a woman in this area who had grown up with these guys her whole life and had known them quite well, known them like neighbors and family. Yeah. And um, it turns out Mary uh, went in to investigate it and talked with the witness and uh, was hit with a landslide of data yeah, I bet. Uh, from a whole lifetime yeah. of, of being around these, these, these beings. Uh, Janice told me that when she was, up until the point when she was about 18 or so, when she left home from this remote area and went to college and uh, really got into socializing and interacting somewhat with the modern world, uh, she had heard of a movie called Bigfoot uh, that was uh, The Mysterious Monsters. It was a documentary by Robert Gwinnett back in the 70s. And uh, she had met a guy, and they had gone on a few dates, and he took her out to the theater, and they went and saw this movie. And that was the first time that she that it ever really dawned on her that this was odd. She had known them since she was six years old. Yeah. And, and never really left home, so never knew that these things weren't prevalent in everybody's backyard. She thought this was just an average common thing. And... Uh, we, we see this element over and over again because most of the people in these contact situations and scenarios uh, are in remote locations and don't have much access to uh, modern civilization as, as most of us know it. Yeah. Now, they have cable TV and things, but, uh, you know, that and Walmart is about the extent of, of technology in, in, their, in their immediate vicinity. And a lot of these people are prone to living and dying and never leaving where their, where their heritage is. And uh, so, yeah, it was, it was really interesting, and I started going over Mary Green's data and started seeing consistencies in a lot of the matters that I've been studying and investigating for years and years that 
these elements weren't available in anything published. They weren't available in, in 99% of any journal of any kind. They weren't, no one wrote books about them. They wrote books about Bigfoot being an ape. They wrote them about him being a hominid, a relic hominid, or, or a Neolithic caveman, or a missing link of some sort. Yeah. Uh, and, but always, always directing it to the, to the, the simplest, the simplest explanation. Yeah. So, uh, it's an evolutionary oddity, or an evolutionary missing piece. Yeah. Uh, so they immediately tied it to the, the biological. Uh, if you go into records into the Neolithic periods with the Native Americans, into the modern Native American uh, uh, cultures, and then into the 30s and the 40s, the 20s, uh, with the miners and the loggers encountering mountain devils and, and wild men, and this is, I mean, these are the terms they used to call them. Mm -hmm. Uh, before Bigfoot or said before the Indians told us who they were, um, all of these things report over and over again not only physical encounters but also really abstract psychological uh, interactions and abstract uh, experiences uh, that involve you know noises without anything coming from it or anything to emanate from, uh, seemingly coming out of nowhere. Uh, here's, here's one that few people know about, but it's very consistent in, in Sasquatch uh, research. And we get a lot of this from, from rangers. It's uh, the sound of machines underground, as if there were a giant industrial old-world factory underground in the remote mountains. Weird. And people can hear this noise, but they can never locate it. And this happens in, in the heart of where there's, you know, Bigfoot presence. Huh. Uh, and so... I started seeing a lot of these, these distinctive parallels. What she was saying to the, the surface Bigfoot community or the popular Bigfoot community uh, was completely new, unheard of, and completely insane. She was reporting that these guys were telepathic. They could read minds. They could remote view. They could vanish from sight. Uh, they can walk without leaving footprints. Um, they can interact with the human mind on, on almost hypnotic levels. They can... Uh, uh, influence the human mind in several different ways. Yeah. And uh, also with UFO interaction, you know, she had spent a period of years asking these guys questions and, and them telling her their own versions of what reality was like and, and what they interact with and what their world was like. Yeah. Uh, how they communicate, interact with each other and, and all of this. And uh, a lot of it to Janice seemed really outlandish because she didn't know anything about UFOs. She didn't know anything about phantom panthers or anything like this. One interesting thing is I'd always, for years, noticed the phantom panther presence with the Sasquatch. Anywhere there's a very heavy reporting of activity in an area, there's going to ultimately be phantom black panthers reported in that same area by different people that don't know that, that there's a big Bigfoot wave going on. Yeah. And vice versa. The Bigfoot people have no clue that phantom panthers and lions and things like this are things that are just completely outrageous but just as consistent as the Sasquatch enigma uh, are breaking out in rashes in these same areas. And in the meantime, you know, the police are taking calls and are with people reporting strange lights in the sky uh, moving around the woods and things like this. And as I said, these things aren't extremely prominent, but they're prominent enough. They're consistent. Yeah. And for something that isn't written about and something that the public doesn't have any resource to learn about, you simply can't hook something that you don't have any knowledge of. Exactly, yeah. 
And, uh, you know, well, that's one of the areas of expertise that I get into is, is archaic documents that by long and far predate the age of UFOs and the, you know, public knowledge of the Sasquatch and all these things. Um, and some of my documents, my, my original documents, go back into the early 1800s, reporting the same things that we get from abduction victims now, uh, reporting lights in the sky in an age when there was no electricity, uh, reporting contact with other beings in an age when there was no such thing as science fiction. Uh, these things weren't even the public mind yet. So that whole concept of, well, people just see things, you know, because we watch a lot of fiction and we live in an artificial world and a world of technology and uh, such a fast-paced information age that it stresses the mind. And Some psychologists try to explain all of these encounters away through these means, but what they, they haven't examined the, the phenomena enough or in-depth enough to see that these things go back to the very dawn of man. Yeah. Uh, there's no period where these things have not been prevalent and uh, haven't been identified and haven't been wondered about. And uh, so, yeah, that was one of my first levels of confirming the data that Janice was giving me uh, after Mary had given me a comprehensive briefing and we had gotten to a point of uh, Janice willing to talk to me and, and really open up and, and get into some of these areas that already the Bigfoot people wouldn't even listen to. So this, it, when, when I came into contact with Janice, um, was when she was first starting to repel from the Bigfoot community because of all this hostile and, and disrespectful activity. Uh, people were just saying the worst things about this woman when, when they had no idea of what she was saying. You know, many of them had never even read the report. Uh, they had just heard or been told some of the elements of it, and those elements didn't conform with their theories of who the Bigfoot are. Uh, and so they immediately ditched them and immediately hopped on this bandwagon of witch hunters that uh, assaulted Mary Green and Janice Carter Coy and, and several other people that have reported these things. Yeah. Uh, simply because they honestly reported it. Back in the 60s, there were several researchers that came to these same conclusions. And uh, they had found similar cases. The same thing happened. The research communities themselves attacked them and then systematically suppressed all of that data. Oh, wow. One of my big problems with the Bigfoot research community at large, not all of them, mind you, but most of them, is this policy of if I think something is lunatic fringe or if I think something is invalid, no matter how consistent the reports keep coming in, I'm going to withhold that from what I write. I'm going to withhold it from the public ever finding out about it. And worse off, any time I do get back into a corner and I have to talk about it, I'm going to talk about it in the context that this comes from the minds of, of you know, mentally disturbed individuals. They call it lunatic fringe. Yeah. Um, and, and it's really, uh, it's really unfounded. Most of these people are very, very intelligent, very sincere. Uh, have impeccable reputations and, and are decent people that have uh, no interest in becoming the focal point of any of these research communities. Uh, they just felt that their information was important and somebody should document it yeah. and were good enough to give a lot of us over the years those opportunities to do that. Uh, in, in Coy's case, uh, I was astounded at how far she was willing to allow this to intrude on her life. You know, and because uh, she doesn't live on the property anymore, she she's you know doing her best to establish a normal life at this point. 
and uh, she's in seclusion. She doesn't want to talk to anybody about it anymore, which is terrible. Uh, right when we were starting to learn, a great deal of it uh, was the breaking point for this witness. And what uh, what kind of information did you glean from her experiences with the Bigfoot? Well, one of, one of the first things I addressed was I had noticed all this panther activity, and that's one of my fields of, of great interest. Yeah. Because uh, it's such a global thing, and it happens everywhere, but people people just don't think that it's odd as much as they do with the Sasquatch, because the panther is somewhat feasible as a physical explanation. Yeah. But it didn't explain why these guys were always around Bigfoot areas. And one of the first things that I, I had her ask in, in, and I had, when I had her act as a go-between between me and the Sasquatch, uh, I had her conduct several little interviews with them and ask specific questions and things like this. And I asked them, you know, what is the deal with these panthers? Why, why are yeah. these panthers always seem to manifest around you guys? And their response was, they had asked if we were familiar with uh, uh, Native American spirituality and their connections with the wolf as a spirit guy. And, you know, of course, most of us were. And uh, they summed it up by saying, well, that's, that's what the deal is with the Panthers. They're our spirit guides. Uh, it's really interesting that they should say that because the Bigfoot in Tennessee, these Sasquatch individuals on the Koi farm, have slit eyes like a cat's. Yeah. It's very strange because this is not something that's found in primates. It's something that is predominantly known in, in raptors and, and reptiles and uh, the domestic cat. A lot of people don't know the domestic cat has an eye structure like this, but the big cats don't. It sets them apart. Yeah. And there's, they're actually from two different families. Uh, the, the feline lineage is just as empty-hearted as, as the homo sapien lineage in the respect that there's this big gap that we kind of, well, homo sapien kind of looks like an ape, but we don't have any of the evidence in between to bring us through those stages of evolution. And the domestic cat is the same thing with the, with the big cat families. Yeah. Uh, we presume, because they look like big cats, only smaller, that they're direct evolutionary processes of, of these families, but there really is no fossil record to, to back that up. And uh, so it makes them as unique as we are, and I suppose as unique as the Sasquatch are. Yeah. Um, now, aside from the Phantom Panther stuff, uh, you, you mentioned uh, that, that sort of like you allude to an oral history of the Bigfoot that you guys sort of got from the Bigfoot. Can you elaborate on that at all? Um, yeah, well, that, that, that whole piece of information came about from a long stream of other pieces of information when we were trying to extract uh, exactly what, what is your association with the UFOs. Are you familiar with what we're saying here? Uh, do you know what these things in the sky are? Do you know anything about where they come from or, or who may be piloting them? And they were very familiar with it. And they call them star people, which is not the first time we've seen this reported in association with Sasquatch. Uh, we have uh, Brad Steiger, of course, has that, that wonderful old report of, a, a, what do you call it, a Mountaineer's Diary, in which this guy had lived with Indian tribes for many years. And he had wintered down with a native tribe one year and noticed that a brave would take this huge platter of meat up into this mountain, be gone for several hours, and then come back with an empty tray. And he would do this night after night. And so this, this guy, according to Steiger, wrote in his journal that he stopped him one night on his way out, and he asked him, where are you taking that meat? And the, 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 the brave just signaled to him, follow me, and, and I'll show you. And 
he took him up into this mountain. And according to the to Steiger and this artifact he has, I would love to see the original. Uh, according to, to what he says, this journal contained details in which this Native American took him up to this cave in this mountain. And they spent the next 10 or 12 days sitting in this cave with this big, hairy, giant guy that the Indians were kind of caretakers of. And that they brought him food when he needed it. He helped them when they needed it. That they spoke of him psychically healing the natives uh, when, they, when they were afflicted. Um, and apparently this, this white man sat in this cave with this Native American brave acting as an interpreter asking this Sasquatch all these wild questions about who you are, where do you come from. Uh, for the most part, they don't really know. They have an oral history, but uh, as in Tennessee, we see that their concept of timelines is different than ours, so it's hard to place if their ancient oral history and how they tell us is from a history that occurred on this planet or somewhere else, or we don't know. Yeah. I'm open to anything at this point. I used to be one of those traditional mainstream Sasquatch researchers, and I'm, I'm telling you this, I had my suspicions, but this case really uh, really closed the deal on my, my whole perspective of, of who and what we're dealing with here, and it's, it's taken a, a drastic transformation over the, the past eight, eight or nine years. When this, this mountaineer, or whatever you want to call it, uh, inquired with the, uh, the Native American on the way down from the mountain, uh, where do these guys come from? He told him the star people bring him, and he said that the star falls from the sky, lands on the ground at a distance from their camp, and little guys in shiny suits get out, push one of these hairy guys out, wave at the camp of natives, and get back into the star and go back into the sky. Huh. And he was also told that when, when they die, or at least when this particular one died, they were supposed to take it to the top of this mountain and the star people would come and get him and take him to heaven. Wow. And uh, so we, we find consistencies through things like this, artifacts, you know, that have come across from time to time. They're, they're rare, but we do see traces of this in, you know, America's history from the 17 and 1800s. And, uh, and, and so it's, it was really stunning to me that, you know, now that we got these guys up close enough to where we can make distinctive contact and communication with them, they're telling us the same information over and over. And at the dawn of me getting involved in this end of it, uh, I was contemplating the possibility that one of the two has happened. Either Native Americans have taught the Sasquatch a great deal of knowledge, or the Sasquatch have taught the Neolithic Native Americans. And it's really starting to lean towards the possibility of the Sasquatch were probably the origin of a lot of North American Indian beliefs and practices and spirituality because and, it seems they have uh, the same distinctive understanding of the universe around them. And when it comes to paranormal elements, uh, anybody that is uh, a Native American and still deeply involved in their culture uh, would be the first to tell you that their sense of reality is engulfed in the paranormal. They recognize all of this stuff, and, and, and that's why they don't fear it as much as modern man does. Modern man has a hard time dealing with all of these things, and uh, people are primarily scared of them, and they shouldn't be. Uh, I found that to be very relevant in Tennessee with the contact we established. It's very difficult for a Sasquatch to get close to a person that fears them, and when that person is fill, filled with fear and terror, 
uh, it sends out a vibration that the Sasquatch can detect and starts to fill them with fear. Yeah. And they get agitated. And then they want you to leave. Yeah. And that doesn't do much for your state at the time either. Your fear culminates to an even larger blast of uh, residual vibrations. Yeah. Uh, and frequencies of emotional nature. And they pick up more of that, and it just culminates into a bad experience for most people. Uh, I've had several hunters over the years ask me, you know, who were really seriously interested in the phenomenon, what do I do if I'm hunting in the woods and I run across one of these guys? And I always tell them the same thing. Open your weapon. If it comes apart from the stock, take it apart, set it on the ground, back up 15 to 20 feet, cross your legs Indian style, and sit down, hold your arms over your knees with your palms up, and bow your head. And they will know that you mean them no harm. This is a physical language that any primitive anywhere on the planet would clearly understand. And it's putting yourself at their mercy. You pose yourself as not being any possible potential threat, and you'll find your experience will be a lot friendlier than they would be if you saw them and the first thing you did was raise a gun. Yeah. And I, I tell people all the time that, you know, when you think about it in human terms, if you came looking for me and you had a gun, <laughs> yeah. I'd be a little hard to locate. Yeah. You know, uh, look at it. Don't look at them like animals. Look at them as if they were people. I'm not saying they're people, but I'm saying that they're, they're at an intellectual level to where you can consider them people. They do understand a great deal. And they understand a lot about human behavior, too. It's, my research has shown me that they have spent a considerable amount of time studying us really? through the centuries. And uh, we've only begun studying them in 1958. Yeah. So they may have the leg up there on uh, right. who knows what. It's one of the things that makes them so elusive, is, uh, outside of them having telepathy, is uh, the fact that they have a much deeper understanding. They know 99% of how a human reacts to their presence. Yeah. You know, they know exactly, they know, a lot of researchers will tell you stories about how their crews have been herded out of the woods and, and completely cattle herded in systematic ways. And, and uh, it's, it's because they have that understanding of how we react and what, what makes us fearful and, and all of this kind of noise. Uh, Fox expressed in, in Tennessee uh, a policy or a philosophy, if you will, of their perception of honor, as far as equality was concerned, was what fears me, I dominate. What I fear dominates me. What doesn't fear me and what I do not fear is my equal. And Fox is the... Uh, is Fox is the patriarch of Genesis group. Yeah. It's the, it's the father uh, figure for the, the right. Sasquatch yeah. that's in contact. Sasquatch, yeah. And when I was out there, I think there were nine of them in the group. But the group comes and goes over the years. New ones come in, old ones go on to other groups or other adventures or whatever. Um, and uh, some of them stay for long periods. Some of them are just passing through and... So on and so forth. And you said you uh, you made some kind of expedition down there. Uh, you had a, a brief window of time, and you went down there. Tell me about that. And right. Well, we, had, we had two target areas because Mary Green, the researcher Mary Green, uh, near where she was living, about 20 minutes, 30 minutes away or so, um, was an area where she had, had established contact with a group of them, a large group of them, uh, but not to the point of addressing language and things like this yeah. in the dialect, but addressing all the signal languages 
throwing pebbles, throwing stones, tapping logs, things like this, tacking mm-hmm. rocks together, leaving signs in the woods with bent sticks and things like this. Yeah. Um, that she had developed a rapport with and understands a good deal of a lot of that. And uh, so for years she's been going into this area, establishing communication, bringing them food. And uh, they come close, but they they're they're not they're not like on, on Janice's property. These most of these guys like Fox. Fox has been around humans his whole life. He it's a lot easier for him to come right up to a human than it is for you know the, the typical Sasquatch that just knows we're bad news. You know, yeah, can't be trusted very much. Yeah. And uh, anyway, we went to uh, Janice's or Mary's place. Uh, we were there for an hour or two, getting to getting introduced to her, you know her team team of people that had been assisting her, and uh, it was a great great little bunch of people, and, and none of them were extensive researchers. They were all just regular people, regular down home folks that, that wanted to help. Yeah. And Mary, uh, getting older in age and, and having some physical difficulties, uh, needed help in sustaining this kind of activity and bringing them food and. Uh, bonding with them to some degree, and all of this kind of noise. And for years they had helped her, and I, I presume they're still helping her now. Uh, but anyway, we left Mary's place after a few hours and went straight into the field. Uh, when, in the pitch blackness of uh, 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, we're standing at the end of the Appalachian Mountains, uh, very deep in the mountains and, and at a dead end. And we go out to a couple of areas, and we set out some calls with some logs and get no responses. And so we move deeper and deeper in. And then we hit the last area that we were going to attempt this at, a short list of areas that Mary's been successful at. As we're going through this gravel one-lane road through the woods, we can see three of these guys to our right trailing right alongside of us. Yeah. Sort of escorting us in. You can just barely see the outlines of their bodies. You can distinctively see the glow of their eyes. Their eyes were so bright, it was uh, it was it was eerie. Uh, their eyes glow uh, distinctively, at least in the, these this particular group of guys. Um, their eyes glowed like a lime green, only very sharp and extremely crisp in color. Yeah. And we were traveling uh, approximately 28 miles an hour, and these guys were pacing us right alongside us in the woods. Oh wow. Maybe. 30, 40 feet into the woods from the road, um, pacing us without any tr- problem at all. And they kind of looked like it was it was really kind of surreal because they just glided through the woods. There wasn't any big racket of trees coming down and stuff being knocked over and stomping and heavy weight and all these kind of things that you would expect. Yeah. Uh, they just kind of, uh, they just kind of moved through the woods with so much grace that you couldn't really hear them, and they, they almost looked ghost-like in the, in the ways that they just kind of softly and glided through the woods. And so once we got into the area, uh, parked the cars, turned off everything, uh, everybody started discharging from, the, from two or three different vehicles. Uh, Mary, at this point, is in drastic physical shape, so she can't really walk too much or walk too far at this juncture. She gets out of the car that she's in, I'm in a van, goes around the side of it, faces the woods, puts out the car, and uh, so she's just standing there next to the car, and at this point it's pitch black because we just shut all the cars off. 
and I'm feeling my way around the car that she's leaning up against. And I hear her say, I just got a pebble in. And as soon as she said that, I started hearing these little short barks that they, they signals that they give to allow you to know that they're, they're, they're approaching and that they're coming closer. Yeah. And as soon as she said, I just got a pebble, I hear this bark, and then a pebble lands right on the top of my right foot. I mean, lands on it with so much precision, it's, it's hard to even fathom. Um, and this is, this is a signal that's more designed to let you know to brace yourself we're coming in closer. Yeah. You know, that this is this is not gonna be a distance thing. We're gonna let you let you know as opposed to believe. Let you know our aware that that we're here and, and that we're uh, we're willing to communicate, willing to interact. And uh midway through all of this, uh two things happen. Uh I usually carry a micro cassette recorder for my field notes. Yeah. One thing I've learned is that you're getting more success from interacting with these guys if you don't use any of the, the technologies to record them. They know what the stuff is for. They know why you want tapes and photos and things like this, and they don't like it. They want, they want to commune or interact with people who want to get to know them. Yeah. Not people that are, have fame in mind, fortune, uh, you know, people that have anything to prove to the world. Uh, many years ago when I started out, those were my aspirations, and they no longer are. I, it's, I'm much more content uh, working with people that are ready to go forward and learn more about it as opposed to converting the rest of the world that these things are indeed a reality. Yeah. And uh, so I get this micro cassette recorder out, and I didn't get it to record them. I got it to record my own commentary. And these are instruments that are tested diligently every time they're loaded. And... Uh, I pull this thing out, and I turn it on, and it runs for about three seconds, and it just stops. Hmm. The light comes on, it's getting power. No fast forward, no play, no record, no nothing. So I thought, well, okay, that's odd. I'll just go get the other one. Took it back to the van, got that one out, same thing. At that point, I just figured, this is, this is not an accident. Something else is going on here. I can get the picture, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, I, I totally understand. Put the recorder away. So I put the recorders away, come around the car, get the pebble thing, and right when they start coming in very close to us, uh, a latter party who was not really a researcher, he is just kind of this goofy friend of one of the researchers, <laughs> oh, yeah. um, comes barreling down this, this, this dirt road in the middle of nowhere uh, in this Jeep with, you know, tons and tons of wattage of floodlights and, you know, JC lamps and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Barreling down, and it was like, oh, hell was breaking loose. I was beginning to wonder, just watching the light come through the woods, uh, I was beginning to wonder if we weren't about to have a UFO. Because <laughs> uh, all the racket and the light coming from this thing, and he pulls up to the area, and, of course, all the Sasquatch repelled. Yeah. Uh, I almost repelled. <laughs> I was like, what the, what the hell is this? Um uh, anyway, so we get him settled, and the whole time this guy's, he's, he's kind of, he, I don't know what to think of, of this gentleman, but he was just really goofy, you know, the whole time he was there, he was chuckling and giggling, and I don't know, he acted more like a like a high school student or, or something, I don't know. He's an excitable fellow, I guess. Right, right. <laughs> he wasn't he wasn't really taking it serious, and, and he was adding to a lot of tension, because a lot of, some of the researchers, a, f a couple of them, uh, are very afraid of them, even though they really shouldn't be, and they know they shouldn't be, 
it's still an instinct that's hard to overcome, especially when you fully know that these guys are in your immediate vicinity. Um, and so they were already a little nervous, and then this goofy guy coming around, and they compounded it. And uh, so we were standing around for a while, wondering, okay, they're not signaling us now, and they've come to a screeching halt, so let's just sit out here a while and, you know, see what they wanted to do and let them call the shots. And eventually, as our eyes started getting accustomed to the, the light, or the lack thereof, because the, the Appalachian forest here is is, uh, is very tall, and so very little light comes down and hits the ground, only little open patches of, of wood uh, to the moonlight hit the ground. Um, and so we have all these little gaps of avenues where we can see moonlight coming through, but just a handful of them. And after about 30 minutes or so, we start noticing things moving in those little areas of light. Yeah. And these things are blocking out all the light. You look down this row of trees and you see where the sunlight, maybe maybe 25 yards away, is hitting the ground in an open clearing. And then you look at something else and then you look back at that same avenue and you're like, I could have swore there was an open patch of light coming through there. Yeah. And then you look back five minutes later and you see the patch of light again. Somebody was standing in between a minute ago, obscuring your view. And so once I had established, okay, they haven't left. Good, they're still here. They're just kind of hesitant. And uh, they all, we started being able to see them move back and forth because they were, they were kind of large and, and very black. And over these patches of light, we can see this little song and dance where these guys are sneaking around back and forth, and they seem to be in several different directions. So primarily, the first thing we realize is, uh, whatever happens here tonight, we're surrounded. Yeah. These, these guys are in all directions of us now. And there's a, a whole large group of them, not just a couple of them. And after a while, I saw a flash of light low to the ground. And I thought, what, what was that? So I fixed my eyes on that spot. I just kept watching it, kept watching it, kept watching it. Several minutes go by. And again, I see two lime green lights just above the ground turn on and then turn off. And they were right next to each other, parallel. Yeah. And it caught my attention, and I said, okay, I'm going to keep my eyes right on that spot. And every time it repeats, I'm going to move forward towards it a little bit. And I kept doing this, and uh, eventually I was able to pinpoint the exact spot that this light was coming from, and it was the eyes of a, a Sasquatch crawling on the ground, um, which was just weird as I'll get out. They can crawl flat on the ground. I would have never never guessed that before I got involved in this end of it. Uh, anyway... I just started walking out into the woods, straight towards, with my eyes transfixed on that one spot, and got maybe six, seven feet away from him, oh, wow, and squatted down next to him, and just started to talk to him. And uh, in the meantime, you know, several of my colleagues that are, uh, in, you know, the people from Tennessee that are back at the, where, where we were parked at, yeah. uh, thought I had completely lost my mind. Because <laughs> uh, they're, they're still intimidated and afraid of them. And they're also aware that these guys are all over in the woods, and here I am, I just go walking into the darkness, like, yeah. like a stroll in the park. Yeah. And uh, he was crawling on the ground, so I didn't think it would be too much of a threat. It looked more like he was hiding from us, so, as opposed to something that was trying to sneak up on you uh, for, for negative purposes. Uh, 
and we were able to ascertain by the direction he was going that he was trying to sneak up on a sack of dog food that we had brought out because people in Tennessee had been feeding them dog food, and they seemed to like it okay, so <laughs> uh, they bring me, you know, 40, 50-pound sacks of dog food out there and leave it out there for them, and yeah. sometimes they come out and get it from them and thank them, and sometimes they just stay at a distance and they leave it there and they get it later after the people have left. Uh, but anyway, I spent, oh, a good 28 minutes or so crouched down on the ground out there, tiggers. Tiggers are vicious, by the <laughs> way. Uh, by squatting on the ground next to the Sasquatch, I ended up with a bunch of tiggers in my leg. And I'd never had a tigger before. Oh, man. So that was a new one on me. There are parasites that bore holes into you and that itch like crazy. And uh, the only way to get rid of them is to put nail polish over the wound and it suffocates them. Oh, Jesus. But I was, uh, I, was, I, was I, had my, I had my pants taped up. I had my my combat boots going with the high ankles on them, and I had about a half a can of off dumped on me, and I couldn't believe these triggers still bored into my legs. Oh, man. But uh, I sat there for about 28 minutes just calmly and quietly and, and very softly talking to him like I would a person and trying to reassure him that there was no one here that, that had any ill intention and no reason to believe that he would be threatened. There were 12 people there, approximately. Um, and... Uh, just repeating this type of communication, hoping to get him relaxed to a point to where he could at least stand up in front of me. Yeah. You know, even though where we were was very dark, and I couldn't see him very clearly. All I could see is his eyes when he would look up at me. Um, but he kept playing this game as if I'm going to stay perfectly still, you know, and hopefully this guy won't notice me, even though his cover had been blown. Yeah. He still refused to get up. But I could look at him eye to eye. This is, like I said, six or seven feet away from me. I can I can see that I was looking into a large pair of eyes that were looking directly at me. And when he looked up at me, he lifted his head a little bit. And when he closed his eyes again, he kind of tucked his head face down a little bit. Yeah. And uh, much to my amazement, there was uh, another brave soul out of the crew who was uh, uh, Sherry Lee Mallon, who had been uh, involved with Mary Green for some years and also... Uh, involved in UFO research and such. Uh, after about five, I'd say five to ten minutes or so of being out there, she took it upon herself to go walk out in the woods and find out what the, what the hell I was doing out there. Because yeah. I was out of sight of the people at the, at the site at this point. All they knew is I walked into the darkness and now they can't see me. And they don't know why or what's going on. And she walked out and, and sure enough, he, he still stayed motionless. He still wouldn't move. You know, and uh, I pointed out to her where he was, and sure enough, she sat there for a few minutes, and he looked up at her, and and we, again, for a while, tried to coax him into relaxing to the point to where he could at least stand up and address us in a respectable manner with it. We didn't want him to feel that he needed to, to hide or that he needed to feel uncomfortable or that he needed to, to sneak up on the dog food. Yeah. And try to allow him to know that we brought it there for them, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the same time, uh, following the advice and following the research of uh, Dr. Lapsuritis, and uh, in conjunction with some of my UFO colleagues, uh, Dr. Leo Sprinkle, um, several avenues of research have taught us that when interacting with these things, one has to be very careful what one thinks, and that what you are thinking has a lot to do with the degree of your interaction, whether it's a good thing, bad thing, hostile thing, yeah. a fleeting thing, um, 
and, and the best thing to do is to remain calm in your mind and to think about what it is you would want this person or this being to know, you know? And uh, so at the same time I'm speaking these words, understanding that he probably doesn't know much of English, if any, uh, that if the telepathic theory is correct, then he will at least be able to receive those transmissions as a thought wave. Yeah. And uh, he never did get up, and so after, after, like I said, about a half an hour of this, I acknowledged to him thanks for not being so intimidated that he left. Yeah. Uh, thanks for not being intimidating towards me, because he could have made me leave very easily. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, let him know that, you know, I recognize that you're uncomfortable, and I'm going to leave now. Thank you for this experience, and, and I'll be on my way, and here's this sack of dog food and other various forms of food for you guys that you can come out when we're gone. We're not going to come back, and we're not going to try to, you know, wait till you're in the food and then come out and jump on you or anything. Uh, you guys are free to free and welcome to it. And uh, we left from the side at that point. And at that point, I'm still wondering about the telepathy thing. I'm seeing a lot of research that agrees with it, in, in several different areas, including the Sasquatch thing. Uh, and, uh, but as far as my own personal experience, to where, okay, I believe the theory, but I don't know it as a fact. I haven't seen it in action. Uh, and once I got to Janice's place, this was, was confirmed in so many different ways. It wasn't, it wasn't even funny. Yeah. Uh, I saw it demonstrated so many times uh, to where Fox could read my mind and then transmit to Janice exactly what he was reading. And she would just uh, spew out things that, you know, that I hardly even remember was in my brain. Yeah. Uh, things about my life, things about my childhood, things about all kinds of stuff that this woman had no way of knowing. Yeah. No way. Uh, not in the farthest reaches. And if she did, the only avenue I could tell is if she was telepathic. You know, and if she was telepathic, why would she be fabricating the Bigfoot thing? You know, yeah. um, I believe that all things are telepathic. It's just that most people are turned, tuned out or turned off from it. Uh, if most people experience psychic activity, they just don't recognize it. Now, most people call it coincidences. When yeah. you're thinking about somebody and then they call you, or you're talking about somebody and then you run into them, you know. Uh, I've, I've seen incidences like that happen so often that it's, it's impossible for me to establish it in my own mind as a, as a coincidence. And I've seen it in research as well to where different things are placed at the same place at the same time for specific other things to occur. And it gets, it gets quite complex at that point. And there are people now that are like Dr. Sprinkle and uh, Dr. Claude Swanson in, in Colorado Springs are now very seriously studying it and coming to some really profound theories and conclusions that, uh, that are quite digestible and eye-opening that, that help a person see how these things are entirely connected. They're uh, in like a synchronistic ballet with each other, all this phenomenon is. Yeah. And uh, we seem to be spectators that are standing in the middle of it. Yeah. Uh, just looking at the dancers in all directions, wondering, wondering what show to watch for the moment <laughs> and what to make of it, <laughs> how, to, how to absorb it. And um, and now since then, what's been going on at this uh, at this area? Is there still ongoing research there? Uh, no, there isn't. As I mentioned, Janice Carter Coy has gone into a summer seclusion. I haven't spoken to her in a year and a half at least. Oh wow! Um, there were residual effects 
for some of the events that occurred out there while I was out there, because a lot of things outside of the Sasquatch phenomenon occurred. I saw poltergeist activity at this house, where, the, where Fox uh, stays uh, on, on that property, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, there was UFO interaction. There were abductions taking place. Uh, there was panther matters going on, not only phantom panthers, but uh, panther men which uh, apparently there are two types. There is one type that looks like a Sasquatch but only has the head of a panther. Oh, wow. Uh, short black hair, but, you know, 9, 10, 12 feet tall, somewhere cool. around there, and uh, human feet, human hands, or human-like at least. And then there's the type of panther that I found extremely prevalent in, this, in several regions of, of Tennessee, which were, they look like your typical academic panther. Yeah. If you stood them up on two feet and walked them around on two feet, that's what we're looking at, only about six feet tall. This is spooky. And I've had so many people report this to me, no one's ever written anything about it. Uh, there's only a couple of mainstream books about uh, the, the, what do you call it? Well, there's different names for them, but there have been waves of odd beasts, not only out-of-place animals, but out of phase animals, animals that we have no familiarity with, and a lot of animals that take on a human-like form, including werewolves and sasquatch and skinwalkers and yeah. all manner of weirdness. And the public just, they're familiar with the sasquatch. Mm -hmm. Again, they're familiar with the most digestible one, the one that we can tie into evolution. Yeah. Um, but they don't realize that there's all this weird animal manifestation that happens all the time, found kangaroos, giant snakes. Uh, and this stuff often happens more commonly than the Sasquatch does, yeah. as far as, you know, people encountering them and making reports. It's just that nobody talks about it. None of the Bigfoot people want to talk about any of this. Um, and, uh, and so for me, having a verse in that, because I've studied a lot of John Keel and, and several other researchers who were willing to talk about it back in the 60s and 70s, um, I, I could clearly see where there was a relevancy in these activity, activity hotpoints. So I start cross-referencing with different organizations and groups and saying, okay, how many, how many UFO reports are you guys getting for this region? Um, and uh, I'm a, a very good friend and colleague of uh, Dr. John Schusler, uh, former NASA engineer, who is the, he's the international, uh, international head of MUFON, mutual yeah. UFO work network, uh, and he's based here in, in Colorado. And so we spend a lot of time, and, and he's always a wonderful, very knowledgeable consultant when it comes to uh, statistics and things. And in fact, when I came from Tennessee, uh, his, his group was the first group of scientists that I gave samples to and, and gave a briefing of what we had found out there. And on his way out the door, when it was all said and done, he asked me, at this point, the location was still very secretive. Yeah. Uh, he had asked me, can you show me a general location in Tennessee where this is occurring? And I said, sure. And I took him to, uh, took him to one of my wall maps, and I pointed out the general area, and his jaw just about hit the floor. Because <laughs> uh, along with this huge upsurge of Sasquatch activity and phantom cancer-type activity, Blue Farm's data dictates that there is a huge surge in pulse happening right at the same place and coinciding side by side with it with UFO and abduction activities. And uh, so here we have a complete cross-reference that not only places A with B, 
you know, but it, it demands a, a C answer, and that answer is that, that there's relativity here, that these things are interacting on levels that, that we're, we're trying to avoid as a society, as, as scientists and researchers. Yeah. And what, uh, sort of, what, what do you think that C is? Like, uh, where these areas bleed over, what do you think um, is, is the reasoning behind it? Is it a dimensional type thing, or what? Like, uh, based on what you've, what you've researched. There's, there's several different theories. Um, one is, uh, okay, if you're, if you're up to speed on the uh, quantum physics and all the theories that are flying around because of the advent of M-brain, um, the detection of, of other dimensions started as a detection of a handful and very rapidly escalated into, well, we think it's infinite. We think there's a multitude of dimensions that we don't know where it's going to end. But the key thing was, was uh, the M-brain's data dictating that there is a dimension that we can scientifically detect now or predict that is within one-sixteenth of a millimeter of our own. Yeah. We're sitting on top of another reality entirely. And for years, ufologists and other advanced scientists in these different fields um, have theorized the possibility of dimensions merging, two worlds merging together, and that these things are coming in and out of one of that other alternate universe, that other alternate dimension. Yeah. And uh, some of the crop circles in England and across uh, Europe and the United States and in Canada uh, seem to have a symbolic nature to where they show two globes and then they show two globes merging into one. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, there's no hard data to dictate it, but that may be relevant. That may be symbolic of, of some of these theories. Um, John Keel probably wrote the most definitive book on UFOs ever written in 1970 uh, called Operation Trojan Horse, in which he outlines his theory of an element called transmogrification, which means a physical hallucination, something that's conceived of and transmitted from a very intense and, and much highly developed uh, consciousness of sorts, uh, that is transmitted and interjected into the physical world, uh, almost as if uh, pointing a projector, projecting a film into another room and then manifesting it as a physical reality after it arrives. And uh, because we're seeing similar qualities in UFOs, phantoms, poltergeist orbs, things of this nature, yeah. the whole gambit, uh, to where these things are physical sometimes and other times they're completely non-physical. You can't touch them. You can't smell them. You can't interact. Uh, they seem to be a projection. Um, in conjunction with things like these things that are walking in and out of dimensions. Uh, every Bigfoot researcher, if they're honest, and if they're a good researcher and thorough, they will have to, they can't deny the fact that they're just like with the UFO and the Panthers, there is a certain set amount of repeat business in collecting reports where somebody's going to eventually walk up to you and say, you know, I saw this thing in the woods, I saw it at close proximity, it scared the living hell out of me, and it vanished right before my very eyes. Yeah. And it left footprints, but those footprints end where it vanished. Yeah. And Bigfoot researchers just don't know what to do with it, so they don't talk about it. At least most don't talk about it. Uh, those that do talk about it, I, I very highly commend. You know, uh, I was... I was a very well-respected consultant in Bigfoot research and considered by many to be one of the most knowledgeable people in that particular field. And it was that way for years until the Stannis Carter-Croy thing came along. Once I confirmed these things, 
all of a sudden, no one wants to, to hear it. And all of a sudden, all my colleagues disappeared. Oh, man. Uh, except for a set number of colleagues that had experienced the same things. They yeah. come to those same conclusions. And a lot of these guys, I'm trying to drag back into it. Yeah. Um, uh, anybody listening out there that knows the whereabouts of uh, Robert Morgan, please have this man get in touch with me. It's very important that his research and his discoveries be pushed forward because I have a sneaking suspicion that he discovered the same things before he disappeared from Bigfoot research. Uh, Larry Batson has been a close friend and, and, and advisor uh, for several years now. And uh, he was much the same. He was very prominent, very well respected within the field. And, and once he started getting into these things, he had a Native American that told him that she could uh, summon Bigfoot. She can go out in the woods, she can call Bigfoot, and you can come out here and you can meet him. And Larry thought, okay, I'll bite. Yeah. And since he starts telling him, uh, I can also call UFOs. At this point, he's not even considering talking to this person or meeting with them or anything, but he'll entertain them for the moment. So, so he kindly thanked this Native American woman for this information, and as a joke on a prominent UFO researcher that he knew, he, he gave her number to him and said, hey, this woman says that she can call up UFOs, why don't you go check it out? And two weeks later, the scientist calls him back and he says, where the hell did you get this woman? She called up UFOs and they came. <laughs> So immediately, Larry's digging in the trash can trying to find this woman's number uh, and called her back and, and said, okay, uh, let's let's go meet the Sasquatch. And they indeed did do that. And it changed his perceptions forever of who they are. And uh, now he's into wildlife preservation and things like this. And yeah. he's just a wonderful person. Um, and he didn't quit. He just left the, the, the public view and the research view of the Bigfoot phenomenon. But he still studies it. He still keeps up on it. Uh, a lot of guys are like this, that come to these same conclusions. And, you know, it's, uh, it's like uh, Kawani, uh, Dr. Lapsuvitis, we were talking just the other day, and, and he told me, you know, what are we, what are we supposed to do, lie? Yeah. You know, uh, if, if that's what it's all about, then, then, you know, we all need to find something else to do. Yeah. All, all I can do is report it as I've encountered it, and as I've seen it for myself, and, and I would love it to be an ape. It would be much simpler. Yeah. It would be great if it were a caveman or, or some Neolithic uh, relic hominid or, you know, any, any, any number of these explanations would be equally fascinating uh, and, and, and insightful, but it's, that's not the case. And, and as we keep finding out in science in general, uh, the universe, nothing is simplified. Nothing is that easy and nothing is that simple. And one thing that disturbs me in retrospect after almost 20 years of research in the Sasquatch thing is the fact that as soon as people found out of their presence, immediately they started explaining what they were. And that's kind of uh, a scientific uh, examination in reverse. Yeah. You know, you don't look into something unknown by starting with the answer and then attempting to prove that answer. And then 50 years later, not being able to prove that answer still, and sitting there still arguing that, that this is a viable solution. If this were a relic hominid or an ape, if it were a meal with a caveman or if it were Gigantopithecus, uh, we would have a lot more than what we got now. Yeah. And what one thing that disturbed me over the years is after about 10, 12 years of studying the Sasquatch, I started to realize that, you know, for them to elude people like Peter Byrne, Peter Byrne is one of the world's most renowned trackers. If they can elude him, they have to be smarter than him. And if it's that smart, it can't be me. Yeah. 
Do you think that preoccupation with um, that answer, that the Bigfoot is an ape, is sort of what's holding the, the cryptos to all feel I that? I think it is. And just like with the UFO community, I think there's key elements in the history there uh, that are equally as stunting. Uh, for instance, the Patterson film. But uh, there's never been any evidence whatsoever that that film is anything but authentic. It has been recognized from the get-go. Uh, from all the, the prominent scientists that examined this, no one has been able to prove anything negative about that film whatsoever. It's time to quit arguing about it. I don't care about Greg Long. I don't care about, you know, Hieronymus and, and all of this kind of crap. Uh, I don't care about Wallace. All of these Bigfoot figures that, hey, I wore the suit. Well, where the hell is it? Yeah. You're telling me that you took part in fabricating one of the most uh, famous pieces of paranormal evidence ever taken, yet in all these years you don't have the slightest shred of evidence that would indicate that that's you in a suit? You don't have a piece of it? Uh, all you can prove is that you crossed paths with Patterson at one point in time? That's, that's ridiculous, but the public doesn't know any better. And all, they don't know the history behind these men. They don't know the history behind the research of these events. Uh, anybody that's even taken the slightest look at Roger Patterson's finances knows that there's no way in hell this guy could have fabricated anything like this. He simply didn't have the finances to do it. Yeah. And those technologies didn't even exist at the time. We got hair moving with the muscles. You know? Yeah. That hair is attached to the body. If it's real or if it's fake, either way it's attached to the body. And no one was doing that back then except John Chambers, he was pioneering that field of special effects in prosthetics with the Planet of the Apes. Yeah. And that was just plastic prosthetics on the face. It wasn't, it wasn't using nylon suits to conform to the body and all this kind of stuff. Uh, so the technology really didn't even exist to give us that high quality of footage or that high quality of uh, trickery if it was fake. Uh, for most of us in Sasquatch research, it's just an undeniable fact, and all the newspapers and media have to do is say, uh, the Patterson film problem solved, this guy Hieronymus was wearing the suit. Yeah. Now, when we keep making statement after statement that we can back up, they never ask us to back it up in the public forum. But when somebody like Hieronymus makes a statement like, I was in the Bigfoot suit, they don't ask him for the slightest bit of evidence. And, and these things, every period of a couple of years, you're going to get people like Hieronymus and people like Ray Wallace. Ray Wallace didn't say he was Bigfoot. He did fake Bigfoot footprints in the 50s, right? Uh, he never fooled any of the researchers. That's something the media never focuses on. He never fooled any of us. Yeah. And the feet that he's holding up, or his son, and, or his stepson, or whatever, his adopted son, I suppose, yeah. um, is holding up for the media to photograph. When you look at the, the cast that Roger Patterson made, do not match. So he was not the Patterson Bigfoot. He was not the Jerry Crew Bigfoot. We've, we've studied these footprints and these castings so long over the years, Jim, that, I mean, uh, there's several different footprints that you can show me, and I can tell you who cast it and where they cast it and what Bigfoot it came from. Yeah. And, and one of those that is most recognizable is Ray Wallace's little two-bit wooden feet that he carved out. Yeah. Um, most of the legitimate Sasquatch footprints uh, pinch the dirt at the toes, crack the earth in the middle because their 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 ankle is in the center, more in the center than I was like uh, is in the rear. Yeah. Uh, so when they shift their weight, which is considerably more, it forms a little crack, a hairline crack in the earth underneath them. Mm -hmm. um, but what we're seeing is we're seeing uh, animation 
in the footprint being made. Yeah. Uh, which is the far cry from an inanimate rubber object or a solid object like a hunk of wood or plastic or whatever um, that Ray Wallace or anybody else would have been using. Foot, Bigfoot footprints are not that difficult to determine what's real and what's fake. Yeah. And uh, but all the media has to say is that that it is easy to get confused. Yeah, exactly. It is easy to not tell the difference. It is easy to be fooled, but the public just swallows it. Yeah. For the most part. Now, I'm not talking about the public that wonders if there is a reality to it. I'm talking about the public that ignores it out, outright. Exactly. That is in the full state of denial that political conspiracies aren't happening, um, chemical experimentation with chemtrails aren't happening. Uh, they certainly are. You know, uh, they don't believe UFOs are occurring, even though we've, out, we've every record to believe it. I have artifacts uh, that go so far back it isn't even funny, and we keep finding more and more as we start looking into the past, uh, looking at old documents, journals, diaries, newspapers, uh, things of this nature. And obviously there's always that cloying, desperate need for proof of some kind, you know, like a photo or a film or a film. My, my policy now, see, that's that's proof and evidence for the lazy and the, the, the soft at heart, mm -hmm. uh, in my view. In my view now is uh, I would much rather bring a, help bring a person to having that experience yeah. than to show them a photograph and offer them belief. Belief is uh, belief is an odd thing in, in human psychology and in, in human sociology. It's... Uh, it's one of those elements that uh, people don't really understand the nature of it. People say, I believe something, and they don't really understand is that they, they think it. People don't understand that, that there is a difference between believing in something uh, which denotes a, a tremendous amount of faith, and uh, then there is knowing something which requires little room for anything else. Uh, you can believe a UFO exists all you want. You can think you saw a UFO. You can have one at close range or be one of those fortunate individuals that gets on one um, and interacts on an intelligent level, close to something personal, uh, and know for a fact that this is indeed going on. And, uh, you know, I've had several people approach me and tell me this about Tennessee. I, I refuse to believe this, and, and you're a liar. And I tell them, you know, Words that are born out of a lack of intelligence don't bother me at all. It would be different if, if Dr. Sprinkle told me that, you know, I don't think you're telling the truth here. Uh, I respect him, and I honor him respecting me. Yeah. And to lose respect in his eyes is a big thing for me. Mm -hmm. um, but as far as the common moron that doesn't really know anything about what he's talking about, but is willing to stand there and very loudly and audibly voice out that no, it isn't, yeah. when he hasn't even left his, his living room, um, you know, you can keep those comments, those people can keep their comments to themselves. And uh, it's like I tell them, you know, put your money where your mouth is, give me your money and time, and I will take you to locations, and you can explain to them why they're not there. Uh, I'm sure they'd be quite entertained to hear it. Uh, but uh, it's, it's, to me, it's not anything that, that's even up for argument, the reality of it. Uh, it's, I'm no longer in a position to even debate it. It's, it's not a theory anymore. I've had that confirmation uh, to the best of its ability at this point. I had gotten close to them before, but never enough to... It was nothing like what happened on Tennessee. It wasn't face-to-face. -face. Uh, I've been in the vicinity of them. I've been near them. I've had distance sightings. 
but this was entirely different. This was this was right in the thick of it, right in the middle of it. Yeah. And uh, there's no one in the world that's ever going to convince me otherwise. I know what I saw, I know what I encountered, and I know what time I spent with them, and, and we're going to continue engaging in that kind of activity. And in August, I'll be speaking at the UFO Rockstar, and Dr. Lapsaritis and I will, for the first time, be in the same place at the same time. Oh, wow. And we plan on going out and saying hi to the boys out here in Colorado. Uh, he's coming from Washington. Yeah. Where the really big ones go. <laughs> uh, that whole region of California and Oregon, Washington, Canada, that's where the huge, huge guys come from. Yeah. Uh, one of the ones I met in Tennessee, Kadune, was between 12 and 14 feet tall, and he was from this region. Uh, he was... Fox went out and got him to take over as the new patriarch because Fox was starting to get old. And, uh, but he was just absolutely colossal. I've never seen anything like it in my life. I, I mean, just couldn't imagine a person being this big. Yeah. And, but there he was. Now, you told me the story here about your, your expedition at night, but did you see any in the daytime or anything like that? Or was it just, uh, mostly that sort of situation where it was, um, in, in the shadows, if you will? It was mostly at night. Yeah. Uh, they observed us constantly, uh, but always at a distance. They wouldn't, wouldn't come close to us and wouldn't interact with us at all uh, in the daytime. But they were, they're generally, they, they, they're nocturnal. Yeah. They, they do get up and about during the daytime sometimes, but on a general rule, when the start, sun starts going down is when they're waking up and crawling out of the cave and, yeah. you know, going about their usual Sasquatch routines and uh, coming down from the mountain. Now, have you done any uh, research in any other areas of the country other than Tennessee? You said this thing sort of uh, died down in Tennessee. Are there other areas you know of that you're looking at now? You mean the Genesis Carter Corson? Yeah. Uh, the case has died down, and yeah. it's died down solely because of the way the Bigfoot community treated these people and reacted to it. All they had to do was go there. Isn't that crazy? All these people want to encounter a Sasquatch and here we got them at our disposal, and none of them got the, the common sense to just, just go there, get to know these people. Janice was very willing and very cooperative the whole way. Yeah. And from day one, she had always told me, just come out here. And the more that she learned about me, the more that she told them about me, and the more there's this really weird remote viewing thing that they do, which... I'm not too comfortable with, but yeah. it's okay. I can't do anything about it. So. But they did demonstrate that they could watch me where I was. Oh, weird. And they were aware of some of the people I was interacting with and consulting with. Mm -hmm. They were watching my colleagues through me in some way and fully aware of what I was doing and fully aware that you know, it was a, a sincere attempt to help these people out and uh, to gain a sincere knowledge of, of the phenomenon and who they were. And... Uh, they wanted me to come out, and they, they told Janice that, that I should be welcome to do so and that they would come out and say hi if I did come out. But from day one, she's always told me, you know, don't, you don't have to believe me. Just come out here. Just come out here. I'll show you. Yeah. And I came out there, and, and she showed me. There was not a flaw in anything that she has ever told me. And because I approached this person in a sincere manner and didn't investigate her, or interrogate her. Too many people go about these things like they're some like they're some kind of police officer wannabe. Yeah. Um, that really puts a witness off. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of things that a witness won't tell you 
if you approach them as if you're presuming they're lying. Yeah, exactly. And they have to prove what they're saying. Uh, there's a lot of things they won't tell you because they, they just don't think you're ready to hear it. Mm-hmm. And uh, by taking a more comprehensive approach and a more human approach and a more sincere approach is a key element I've found over the years. And I, I gave up investigations a long time ago, and now I just go on explorations and choose to experience things. Yeah. And it's been much more effective in every field that I dabble in. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we got to be quite close friends uh, for several years, and, you know, there was tons of data that she gave to me that, that she never spoke to anybody else about. Uh, but unfortunately, we've lost contact. She's in the middle of nowhere. Uh, there's no laptops and yeah. <laughs> cell phones and things like this where she's at. And, and uh, until I speak with her again, uh, three-quarters of the data I retrieved isn't going to be discussed, you know. And why is that? Well, primarily because I, I'd always told her that, you know, this is, first and foremost, this isn't for other people's knowledge, it's for my own, yeah. first and foremost. Uh, I want to know what's going on behind all this stuff. Yeah. I want to understand it. Then maybe we can figure out a way to translate it down to other people who have lesser experience or lesser background in research, and, you know, just the public in general. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, my policy with, with witnesses and things of this like is uh, absolute integrity. And, and if there's something she doesn't want discussed or something she doesn't want known, that it should be up to her. I give her full control, just like I do with the Sasquatch. Yeah. And I get better cooperation from both parties. Exactly, from, yeah. From doing so. I give them full control of the, the, the whole expedition, full control of what's done with the materials that's collected. Uh, right now, all of the artifacts I have, I have DNA. i got hair clumps with skin attached. Oh, wow. I've got fecal matter. Of, I'm the first person in history to collect Sasquatch urine. Find, find somebody else that has that. Um, these things are currently in labs being studied. And, but if, if Janice called me right now and said, send it all back, I consider the property hers. Yeah. You know? Uh, and and it's, it's just on loan, so we can learn from it. Yeah. Uh, we also have a tool that they had made. Oh, really? They, they had given us a stone tool. Yeah. Do you have any pictures of that? Yes, yes, I do. Are they, uh, are they your website or just uh, in your position? Um, they're just in my possession, but I can email them to your website if you'd like. Yeah, that would be killer. Any photographs or whatever. Uh, we, we have an Apex, and in my own photographic, there's several different bodies. I have my own photographic collection from my own research and conventions and projects and expeditions and things like this. Yep. Then I have the J. Allen Heineck collection, which is a collection of about 60 slides that was the first series of slides that Mr. Heineck had created for when he first started doing lectures. Oh, wow, that's cool. And so I have this original set. Some of the UFO photos that he has on the slide set are, you know, he, you know about his involvement with Blue Book. Mm-hmm. Well, he got, he, got the, he got the privilege of getting his copies of a lot of UFO photos in pristine condition from the original negatives. Yeah. Where wow. the public got the scratched up fingerprints, yeah. you know, overexposed, just really low-quality, crappy copies of these photos. And Heineck's collection are some of the cleanest and closest to the original negatives uh, that, that you can find of, like, the McMinnville UFO mm-hmm. uh, historic cases like that. And then I have a collection of about seven or 800 slides from uh, Robert C. Beck, 
who was then our Mike Sanderson, he was one of the first scientists with a legitimate academic background uh, to look into these matters publicly and speak about it publicly. And back in the mid-60s, he took it upon himself to start collecting an archive of photographs of all things relevant to UFOs and started using them in lectures. And then he started with a company called Color Code that he had, uh, started making these slides available to the public and available to other researchers so that researchers that lectured on this and scientists that lectured on this uh, could get, you know, uh, slide images for their lectures. And uh, public awareness was, you know, and is uh, a main objective for a lot of us in, in good research here. Yeah. And uh, I conduct myself in, in the ways of some of these, the finest uh, former researchers like Sanderson, Keel, and Beck, and all these guys. Well, Beck died a couple of years ago, and I ended up with his entire original slide collection of personalities, the first conventions that ever took place. Oh, wow. Uh, landing sites, lab tests, statistics, uh, original drawings, original statements and affidavits, and uh, you name it, original UFO photos, uh, witnesses, other researchers in the field, who's who, the whole, whole gambit. Oh, wow. Uh, there's several Sasquatch images in there and things like this. And and, uh, and I obtained the entire collection, thankfully, and, and salvaged that off of eBay. Holy crap. Because uh, one of the big terrors in these types of art artifacts, one of the big fears, is that if this gets into the hands of an enthusiast, it's curtains. Here's a piece of not only a good collection of images and histories, many of which the public's never seen, and have, have to this day have never been uh, released or published. Yeah. Um, but if this gets in the hands of an enthusiast, the first thing that's going to happen is they're going to try and capitalize off of it. Yeah. So the whole collection in itself would be parted out or lotted out. Yeah. It would be otherwise separated. Mm -hmm. uh, we can't depend on people in the public to know how to handle uh, these types of artifacts. Um, you know, it may end up in someone's basement, may end up lost again. Um, uh, things like this are, are often lost for many years, and there's tons of artifacts like this out there that no one knows where it's at. Uh, with the Carter Coy case, Genesis produced uh, photographs, her and Mary, photographs, hair samples, skin samples, blood samples, fingernails, footprints. Uh, the, the whole nine yards, you name it. Mm -hmm. And everybody is sitting there saying the same thing. Where's the proof? Yeah. Well, what what do you want? <laughs> you know, you won't go out there and see them for yourself. You won't accept any evidence offered. You you don't even know these people, yet you're sitting there telling the public that they're lunatics or that they're, they're uh, you know, just Making a complete habitual liar. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or a con artist or something. Dennis has not netted anything but heartache, poverty, and misery from coming forward. I'm sure. I'm sure. And it has just, you know, it's really, it's disrupted her life on, on, on a very negative level. The same thing with Mary Green. And it, it tears me apart. And that's, that's how I got involved was I felt the need to stand up for Mary's work because she showed so much integrity in her work in the past. I had no reason to believe that she would be fabricating anything. And, and I still stand by that. Yeah. Aside from your work on the APEX Research Archives, what kind of projects are you working on now? Um, so right now, I'm in the middle of analyzing uh, my latest acquisition, which is a photograph that we 
can narrow down to somewhere between, taken between 1943 and 1954. Mm -hmm. uh, and hopefully we'll get a more and more narrow scope as this thing uh, progresses. But what I'm looking at is I'm looking at an 8x10 photo that was created in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. This photo was a close-up of an original 4x4 photo taken in the 40s or early 50s. Yeah. Sasquatch was not known to the American public until 1958. Um, this photograph, the original, was taken from about 50 yards away from the, the Sasquatch, and it was taken in Oregon by a miner. That will help us date it greatly because people haven't been allowed to mine in several years. We can pinpoint when that became illegal and go back from there. But this photograph uh, is from the waist up, a fairly clear, clean photograph of a Sasquatch. Now, you can't see his face too well because the, the, the whole design of their face is very shadowy. Dark hair, deep sockets, protruding brow ridges, things like this uh, uh, cast shadow even in broad daylight, and this photo was taken in broad daylight. Uh, hopefully, as time progresses, we will be able to track down. I'm sure they're both still alive. I'm sure they're both in possession of their artifacts. One person has the original negative. Yeah. One has the original photo. But uh, apparently this, this miner had a, a, a fruit orchard of some kind in Oregon. Him and his wife had problems with these guys coming in and raiding the, the trees, which we see common in Bigfoot studies. They can clean out a tree in no time. Um, they also eat uh, spoiled fruit and get somewhat intoxicated off of it. <laughs> That's just an interesting side note. But uh, anyway, at some point this guy was in the mountains, took a photograph of one of these dudes, and uh, he died back in the late 80s, mid-80s, and his family was going through the family photos, found this one in the negative, and threw it in the trash can. And his nephew found out about it and recognized that, hey, that's a Bigfoot. Yeah dug it out of the trash can. Years later, the photo ended up in the hands of a lawyer. The negative is presumably still in the hands of the nephew. And the lawyer had a client who was part of an explorer's club. And he was the one that noticed the photo on his office wall and said, hey, would you allow me to photograph that? Can we take it out of the frame? Yeah. And from there, it ended up years and years later into my hands. Uh, but it is what I believe to be the oldest known, or oldest known photograph of a Sasquatch, and it predates any public awareness of the being. So if it's a guy in a hairy suit, and we can pinpoint the date uh, previous to 1958. Again, we're back at the fundamental of how do you think something that doesn't exist in the public mind yet. Yeah. And uh, are you planning on opening up the Sapex Research Archives to... Uh uh, like, you see you have a lot of stuff there. You're going to open, uh, is that going to be opening up soon? And just well, a lot of, you can a lot access of it, a lot of that information. For, for years, I just worked with a, a handful of researchers and worked as a consultant and uh, things of this nature, did private lectures. And uh, recently, in recent years, I've been doing more and more public lectures, uh, uh, allowing these lectures to be videotaped, uh, being very open about a lot of this stuff. Yeah. That's the encouragement of, of the colleagues I've had over the years. Um, but the, the Apex Archives for quite a while now has been open to the public by request and by appointment. Uh, right now, the archives is jam-packed into a singular room where it used to be in a house. It used to be a, a whole wing of a house. Yeah. Um, and so eventually, sometime in the near future, uh, it will be back into an establishment to where it can be just general public. 
But certainly anybody is, is open to, uh, I'm, I'm very open to anybody asking questions, uh, setting up meetings. Uh, if, if you're a researcher or just an interested public party that has a sincere interest, uh, curiosity seekers, well, they can, they can watch the Discovery Channel. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm very much, uh, a lot of my time is taken up and uh, a lot of money is taken up, so I try to limit myself to people that are very sincere in what they're seeking. Mm-hmm. And, uh, offer them uh, the ability to consult with me and locate uh, pieces of information and, and available things, public and non-public, uh, that can benefit their research or benefit their studies or benefit their explorations of whatever direction they're coming from. Yeah. And, uh, and one of the things with the Apex website is I would like to follow in the tradition of Robert Beck in making a lot of this stuff available, it occurred to me several years back that there is no resource. And I've looked. If you find one, please send it to me. Uh, I've looked high and low. There is no resource to purchase photographs of UFOs. Now more than ever, we have people in the public really contributing to these fields of study. They're doing a, a hell of a job. A lot of people are coming forward and dedicating themselves to learning about these things. And I have people like Lonnie Brummett and several other very close uh, used to be, uh, not really followers, but they, they were kind of fans of mine that just really enjoyed my lectures and, and got to know me over the years. And, and these people bring me stuff that you wouldn't believe. Uh, Lonnie Brummett, for instance, brought me photographs of a Native American artifact over a thousand years old that's a piece of an effigy pottery with a Sasquatch's face on it. Oh, weird. It looks like an ape except for it has a long, narrow bridge on the nose. And the only ape that we know with a long, narrow bridge on his nose is Sasquatch. They're the only thing that looks like an ape but has a human nose. Yeah. No ape has that. Uh, no primate has that. And so uh, it's very distinguishable. Well, anyway, turns out, after an investigation, this artifact was found less than 60 miles north of Mary Green's area. Huh. So now we have a thousand years of history of these guys being there. We know they're there. There's no doubt in my mind about it. Uh, she couldn't have known about the artifact, and the artifact was discovered back in 1970 and uh, is still unpublished. It's being included in an article being written for uh, Fate magazine right now called Sasquatch Gothic, which is uh, going to trace the history and the transition of the old world and what we used to think of it and the records we have and the... the uh, recent old world of modern Bigfoot research in conjunction with the second part of the article is going to be, hopefully it'll be a two-parter, but the second part will be more focused on where it's heading and, and, and all these things because I can't see the common Bigfoot paradigm withstanding much confirmation this way. Uh, it's time for these guys to recognize that the world is not flat and that we don't walk into these things sometimes knowing what we're dealing with, and that sometimes the answers we get explode into massive questions yeah. that, that we really do have to work and struggle to comprehend and understand and come to grips with if we're going to ever uh, benefit from it in a positive way or uh, get closer to it. It kills me that all these great Bigfoot pioneers, John Green, Renee Hinnon, God, I mean, I, I cut my teeth on these guys. Um, I'm frustrated with their lack of vision and being open-minded and considering other things. Uh, but I, I do admire and respect the, the contributions they've made, but it really, 
it's really heartbreaking to see that these guys have dedicated so much diligence and so many years of their lives to pursuing these things, and they've never even seen one. Yeah. And here we have a scenario where all you had to do is go there, and they wouldn't do it. Yeah. You know, they could have stood there face-to-face alongside of us and, and been a part of us, and undoubtedly been a part of more and more experiences like this as we integrate with them. Yeah. For a Sasquatch, from what I've experienced and understand, and it may sound corny to a lot of people, but, you know, I'm not the kind of person that really gives too much of a dog to what people are inclined to think. Um, I've been there and I know, but the thing is, is that the Sasquatch don't want anything to do with anybody that is not willing to spiritually bond on them, or yeah. bond with them, yeah. on that level, you know? Yeah. Uh, to them, it's, it goes to the core of human nature and human compassion and, and the genuine sincerity of, of, of wanting to learn more about them and wanting to help them understand more about us. Yeah. Uh, once you get that established, they're very cooperative. And uh, where can people find out more information from you, uh, ufothinktank.com, and then click on the Apex button? Right. That's the best I way to go about doing anything. Uh, yep, and there's a... Uh, there's an uh, email link yep. in Apex that they can click on and they can contact me directly through email. Uh, and things will progress from there. And uh, what kind of, uh, you're going to be speaking at some conferences this year. Uh, why don't you give some shout-outs to the various conferences you'll be at? Yeah, right now I'm scheduled for the, uh, I believe it's August 12th, uh, the last a couple of days every year out in San Luis Valley here in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they have this UFO Watch Tower event there every year. I can tell you, I've spoken for them for many years. The UFOs come to this conference. I can't explain it, but they do show up every year. <laughs> um, and, and I'll be damned, it's true. I've heard this rumor for many years, and I finally went out there, and sure enough, there they were. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was quite stunning. Um, and you, got the, uh, you said you're going to be speaking at this conference, um, and you got an article coming out uh, for Fate Magazine? Right, right. And uh, Dr. Jack Lapsaritis will be at this conference. Uh, Chuck Zakowski. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Roswell dig. Uh, yeah, yeah. Archaeological dig that took place. Him and Debbie Siegelmeyer, his sister, will be out there. Uh, they're also very close friends and colleagues of mine. But we, the, the, the Watchtower was set up by Judy Messaline, who is, again, just your ordinary citizen, who had always laughed about the UFO thing, took it tongue-in-cheek, heard the stories about the valley, ended up moving out there. Well, now she doesn't laugh. Yeah. She sees it all the time. You know, you want to see UFOs? Hang around the valley, man. You're going to see them. Uh, and uh, this inspired her so much that she has devoted herself into building this watchtower and, and doing this every year and just uh, doing her best, the best that a private citizen can do to, to contribute towards public awareness of these things. Because it's really opened her eyes, her whole life, and her whole pers- perspective of reality and, and, and purpose has changed uh, since she's moved out there. And she's a wonderful person, and people like uh, Chuck Zikowski and myself have always supported her and admired her for, for, for doing so, because she's kind of gone above and beyond what most, uh, most people in the private sector, the public sector, uh, are able to contribute. Yeah. Uh, all right, well, thank you very much for being on the show. Is there anything you uh, want to plug at all that we should mention other than the website, um, ufothinktank.com, and then click on the Apex button, and you get all the information on Joe Fex there. 
Well, there's, there's tons of good resources, you know, for the, for the public to utilize. As far as plugging and things like that, Yeah. Um, I have raw video. I mean, they're, they're not market quality or anything like that. But we, I, I try to document all of my lectures for sharing with other colleagues and interested parties and things like that. We try to keep it low-key. I, I don't like the whole flair of, you know, popularity and marketing and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but uh, certainly any any of my lectures on, on recordings or disc or cassette or video or anything like that uh, can be made fail, available. All you got to do is pay for the materials and, and we copy it and send it out. Yep. Um, Apex is about being a resource for information, so you know uh, we also offer consultation and things like this for people that are looking in different areas and need a little bit of guidance and possibly don't know about the existence of certain information avenues. Um, but uh, some of the best resources out there are really starting to move forward uh, with what they do. Uh, I had mentioned to you in that earlier call with uh, Rob Simone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm very impressed and proud of what he's been able to accomplish in, in recent years. He's been a good friend and a, a very intelligent colleague of mine. Um, there's uh, the Jeff Rent site, if anybody's uh, oh, yeah. familiar. I'm sure you're familiar with yeah. that. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, uh, just like David Icke, I mean, good God. I mean, you can just spend the rest of your life uh, going through his files exactly, and yeah. finding all kinds of stuff that you never heard about before. Um, but it's very comprehensive, it's very diligent, and it's, it's, it's very respectful, you know? Yeah. Uh, a lot of us out here are not in this for the, uh, the fame of it or the celebrity of it. That really upsets me when people view themselves in this as they, they think they're actors or musicians or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, they have groupies and, and things for this. <laughs> uh, they think they should have limousines pick them up at the airport and yeah. things like this. Uh, I'm not for any of that, you know? Uh, yeah. We're just trying to do our best to uh, spread knowledge and, and, and at the same time try to gain more understanding for ourselves and at the same time try to uh, endorse positive avenues of research. And uh, most of my colleagues uh, are very, very cooperative. Uh, all you have to do is contact them and approach them, uh, meet them at a conference or email them or uh, write to them. People don't write anymore. Yeah. Uh, some some of my colleagues are older, like uh, Dr. Sprinkle. Uh, he he doesn't have a computer. Well, doesn't want to have one. Yeah. Um, but that, that's great though because uh, we 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 get to correspond the old-fashioned way, and I found that that's actually a good exercise to get into. Yeah. And and over the years, I've I've grown to actually enjoy it. And uh, but at first, it showed me how illiterate computers have made me. Yeah. <laughs> so I always did very well in English and things, and computers just rotted that away for a period. Um. But, uh, but yeah, and so I, I think the best advice or the best directions that I could give is, is to stick with the, 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 the Sprinkles, uh, the Bud Hopkins. Uh, you know, uh, I could go on forever. Yeah. Some of the uh, just really super advanced, intelligent minds that are really pushing their fields to the limits. I consider them to be true pioneers. Dr. Roger Lear, uh, not to mention just some of the most genuine people that you would ever want to meet. There are sincere and honest people in this business that aren't full of ego, that aren't full of stars in their eyes for money and getting on TV and all these motivations. And uh, I suppose once I get down to 
uh, doing episodes and, and releasing books and publishing things for that matter. You know, I'll have to deal with the I told you so crowd, but uh, it's, it's all in the matter and it's how you present it and the real reasons why you do it. Uh, anybody will tell you, you know, ask Tom Powell. Uh, he's another great one. Read his book, The Locals, mm-hmm. by Tom Powell. That's T-H-O-M and Powell with two L's. And read uh, Dr. Lapsaritis. Uh, Jack Lapsaritis' book, The Psychic Sasquatch and Their UFO Connection, for anybody that has an interest in, in getting into these outer realms that have opened this whole new gateway of what we're dealing with when we're dealing with the Sasquatch. Uh, Tom Powell was just like me. He's going through his own evolution. Um, he is just short of the stage of meeting them face-to-face. Uh, wow. He, he thought he knew what he was doing and thought he knew what he was talking about got into some habituation cases and contact cases and found out very rapidly that these guys are smarter than I am. Yeah. And they're playing games with me. Uh, they're giving me the runaround because I'm trying to them. And they don't like being tricked. Uh, yeah. One demand is, is you know, uh, trust is a major issue with the Sasquatch. Absolutely major. Don't violate it in any way, shape, or form. Don't hide anything. No camera traps, no hidden microphones, no guns. They will know. They are telepathic, and they will know. Um, and if you don't believe me, you can go test these things and go sit out in the woods and have absolutely nothing happen. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you very much, uh, Joe Fax, for being on the show. Uh, really fascinating stuff. It sounds hey, like sorry. it sounds like you're uh, you're really on the cusp of some real groundbreaking uh, research. I hope I hope we see and hear more from you. Uh, I know you say you're, you're very busy, you can't really get a book out, but I hope we see that. Luckily, you're doing this Fate Magazine article coming out soon. Uh-huh. And, uh, You'll definitely hear and see more of me. <laughs> I hope so, yeah. Well, one thing uh, my colleagues love about me is, is, uh, is I'm not one that, that keeps quiet about things, you know, and I'm, I'm very much into confronting things that most people just kind of shy away from because they feel it'll damage their reputation or whatever. Um, so I'm, I'm somewhat of a, a, a self admitted loudmouth as far as yeah, things are concerned. It doesn't it doesn't bother me what some of the, the other researchers say about it, you know, and what they'll undoubtedly say about me. Yeah. Um yeah, like I said, uh yeah, your stuff's your stuff's really fascinating. I like how uh you, you really sort of uh grab onto this stuff that's bleeding in between the two fields and, and the various other fields because that's you know, that stuff needs to be examined. That's probably gonna be adding more clues to uh the ultimate solutions to what we're trying to find the answers to. And uh I appreciate that someone's picking up the pieces that often fall by the wayside when researchers uh, can't fit it into their paradigm. So uh-huh. it's good to see somebody else coming along to uh, pick up that sort of stuff and find out what's going on with that and tie these loose ends yeah. together. And uh, like I said, you're there's, there's more. There seems to be a growing number of other intelligent minds like yourself and, and Simone and, and a lot of these other guys that that are willing to take a, a serious listen to it. You know what I mean? And a, a serious look and, and examine things from a bigger scope. You know, it takes a certain amount of of, of bravery, if you will, to, to be able to take that step because, you know, we're, we're, like, just like my area of research, uh, your area of public interaction is uh, the make or break point. It's like Rob says, uh, it's where the rubber meets the road, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's really the cutting edge of it all. And and it's easy to go with the flow and to say the things that everybody wants to hear and get all the public notoriety and attention. Um, 
but it's it's the hard job is is the the truthful path and, and the one that that goes where it needs to go as opposed to what everybody else wants to hear, you know. Yeah. Well, yeah, like I said, I found your stuff really fascinating. I'm glad I had the chance to bring you on the show and, and get get more of your research out to uh, to our listeners. And hopefully we'll be hearing more from you and seeing some more materials from you in the near future. Yeah, it's certainly been a pleasure. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. That does it for this week's edition of Been All of America Audio. I want to thank Joe Fex for sitting down and talking to us for so long. Tons of fascinating information. If you want to find out more about Joe Fex, Here's his web address again, www.ufothinktank.com. Click the Apex button in the top right-hand corner, or go to www.ufothinktank.com slash apexresearch/index.html, and you spell the Apex Research like this, A-P-E-X-R-E-S-E-A-R-C-H. There you go, that's his website. Find out more information about Joe Fax. Also, want to thank Leslie, Chiron, and R. Lee of BenAllOfAmerica.com for your help and support with the audio series. You can find their columns at BenAllOfAmerica.com. Mondays, R. Lee, every other Monday or so. Tuesdays, like clockwork, it's Leslie's Gray Matters. Wednesday, Chiron with the K-Files. They keep the website going. If you are a long-time listener to Benall of America Audio, you like our stuff, you want to help us expand and grow the BOA empire, click the PayPal button. Throw some change in the bucket. Don't break the bank, but if you got some money you can spare and you want to help out the show and help things progress, click the PayPal button and help us keep going. Also want to give a shout-out to Leslie's Ghost Photo Contest. It's still ongoing throughout the month of May. Check it out. Go to ghostphotocontest.blogspot.com. It is a contest. you got a ghost picture. You think you got a picture of a cool ghost. You send it in. At the end of May, there's a big vote going on. If you win, you win an amazing prize. First place gets a Ghost Hunters Season 1 DVD collection and Ghost Hunters Key Ring. Second place, Sci-Fi Channel T-Shirt and Ghost Hunters Key Ring. Third place, Sci-Fi Channel T-Shirt. This contest being brought to you by Leslie's Debris Field, the Sci-Fi Channel, and Ghost Hunters the TV series. Ghostphotocontest.blogspot.com. Go there, check it out. If you don't have a ghost picture, go there to pick your favorites. If you do have a ghost picture, go there to enter your ghost photo and try and win the contest. They've got a ton of pictures up right now. Every week there seems to be more and more pictures from people who think they've taken a picture of a ghost. Some of them are really chilling. Some of them are like, meh. So it's pretty cool. It's a fun website to go and check out. Ghostphotocontest.blogspot.com. All the information on the ghost photo contest is there. This contest being brought to you by Leslie's Debris Field, the Sci-Fi Channel, and Ghost Hunters the TV series. Next week, it is an ultra-rare week off for yours truly. I'm taking the week off. We'll return on May 27th with a super-huge guest. I'll reveal that next week at BenAllOfAmerica.com. But until then, enjoy the week off. Dip into the archives. If you haven't listened to some of our classic episodes yet, you're missing out. About 15 guests or more, about 30 episodes of Been All of America Audio. So if you're bumming around next weekend, you got nothing to do, you're mad at me because I'm taking the week off, go to the archives, download one of the classic episodes, and dig in. Until you hear from me again in two weeks, folks, this is Tim Benall, signing off.